welcome to today's Our Voices, a Voice of Japan podcast. This is Sachiko. Hi, I'm Leslie. I'm one of the hosts of Our Voices. Our Voices is the official Voice of Japan podcast released every Friday. We discuss articles from our Voice of Japan writers, feature our members, and conduct interviews with different guests every week. Today's topic is about the recovery of Fukushima. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, also known as the Great East Japan earthquake. This earthquake was the most powerful one ever recorded in Japan. It resulted in 15,899 deaths, 6,157 injured, and 2,529 people missing across 20 prefectures. The earthquake Subsequent tsunami and nuclear meltdown led to hundreds of thousands of people relocating to other areas. Ten years later, we look into what has changed in Fukushima and how Fukushima can continue to grow. We are joined by Dr. David N. Nguyen, an associate professor by special appointment at the International Research Institute of Disaster Science of Tohoku University and the Japanese National Research Institute. For Earth Science and Disaster Prevention. Welcome to the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi. Good morning, Leslie and Sachiko.、Uh, my name is David Nguyen. I am an associate professor at Tokyo University, but I also hold a position at the National Research Institute for Earth, Earth Science and Disaster Prevention, which is a research institute under the Japanese government. Uh, that specializes in disaster management. I'm originally from Hawaii, so I'm American, but I've been living in Japan for some time now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So, could you explain a little bit what your role is at the International Research Institute of Disaster Science? Okay, so I have two main projects I'm involved in. The main one is in regards to the standardization of Disaster management or disaster risk reduction infrastructure. So basically, there's a lot of hazard risk around the world, right? And it's important to distinguish between hazards and disasters because people think they're the same thing,、uh, but it's not the same thing. For example, if a tsunami hits some empty area, nobody considers that a disaster, right? Because there's no death. Disaster occurs when there's an interaction between hazards, you know, such as fires or earthquakes. And society, and when society can't handle the crisis that occurs from a disaster, for example, like the number of deaths or the number of damage is too overwhelming, and that's what we consider a disaster. And so, what we do in my main job is that we're trying to standardize different kinds of infrastructure that reduces the risk of disasters. It can be like typhoons, earthquakes, volcanoes, etc. And if we can standardize this, it becomes cheaper for everyone in the world because there's like a set guideline about how to produce certain kind of things that everyone can follow, whether it's from a developed country or a developing country. And so, in this way, we hope that more people have access to this kind of technology and guidelines that can make communities more resilient to disasters. So that's my main job. But my background is more on tourism and disasters, and that's one of my side projects right now. And I have a grant that looks at the impacts of the Tokyo Olympics on tourism businesses. 
because there's so many areas such as in Tohoku and Kyushu that were affected by recent disasters. So the Olympics, it was hoped that the Olympics would help some of the economic recovery, but the problem is uh, we don't know if it's going to happen or not, right? And then the coronavirus happened. And so I'm wondering if I should change it to look at the impacts of COVID-19 on small tourism businesses, if the go-to travel campaign helped or was a you know, like a positive or negative thing. So I'm kind of torn in between whether to keep looking at the Olympic impacts, which may or may not happen, or to switch it to COVID-19 impacts. So those are two main things I do. Um, and I have a lot of like small things, but uh, not sure if you guys want to hear that, but those are the two main things I'm doing right now. Well, wow, that's, that's impressive. Uh, thank you. <laughs> really interesting. So it's kind of like the intersection between... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of civil engineering plus disaster management. Okay, so I actually started my PhD at the University of Hawaii in the Department of Urban Planning. But in Japan, they don't really have an urban planning field. So when I moved over to Japan because I received a scholarship, they put me in civil engineering. And civil engineering has some overlap with urban planning, but it isn't quite the same. So... When we try to explain like the difference between an architect, a civil engineer, and an urban planner, the architect would look at like the design of a building, right? Right. The engineer would look at the structure, like how strong it is and et cetera. The planner would look at the relationship between the building and the community. So that's the main difference. So for example, I like I can't tell you, you know, the calculations of whether this building is safe or not, but I can tell you the role of the building in the city and the society, uh, the regulations and, and all the other aspects that are that tend to be between infrastructure and society. Oh, I see. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> all right. So going back to the topic in terms of the recovery of Fukushima, what has happened over the past years in terms of recovery at Fukushima? Okay, thank you for that question. But before I answer that question, I wanted to bring up an important thing about public interest in disaster recovery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this happens in every major disaster, whether it's the 1995 Hanshin earthquake in Kobe and Osaka, mm -hmm. or the 2011 um Great East Japan earthquake in the Toku area. And within academia, but not just academia, but also practitioners, we usually say there's four phases of a disaster, right? And there's two phases before the disaster, like the preparedness phase and the mitigation phase. And then you have the disaster event. And then after that, you have the recovery phase and the reconstruction phase, right? And uh, there's some different terms, like sometimes they'll say it's a response instead of recovery, but it's roughly four phases. The problem is most people, this includes the public and even politicians, they're mostly interested in like the response phase, the phase that happens during and right after a disaster, because that captures public interest, right? Like all of these images of destruction, then the early reconstruction phase also gets a lot of attention. So usually the first thing that gets rebuilt are some of the key infrastructures, such as roads that get damaged, certain kind of buildings. And, you know, comparative to other aspects of a community, those things tend to be rebuilt faster, like within several months or a year or so, right? And then after that, 
public interest declines because they think, okay, all the roads are rebuilt, um, all the buildings look normal now, so it's done. But the thing is, society takes a long time to recover, and sometimes it may never recover, even if it takes 10 years or more than 10 years. So, for example, in the 1995 earthquake in the Kansai region, you know, that was a really big earthquake. There was images of freeways or expressways that fell down, etc. And a lot of that was fixed up within, you know, the first two or three years. And now that it's not visible, like the damage is not visible, people think that, okay, the Osaka area is fine and everything has recovered. Uh, but that's not true. For example, like Kobe area, right? Their port businesses, a lot of the businesses took a very long time to recover. And Kobe's status as a major port city in the world never recovered, even until this day. And a lot of that is because of timing, right? It happened in the mid-90s. And that's when the other Asian economies started rising rapidly. Mainland China, Korea, and Taiwanese ports started booming. And because Kobe took a long time to recover, both in terms of the physical infrastructure and then the non-visible things such as the economy, businesses, and society, they lost out in this key t period and they couldn't catch up when the other Asian ports replaced them within the world, like world shipping industry. So some things may never recover. And so back to your original question. So when we look at the Tohoku area, I would say a lot of the physical infrastructure has been rebuilt. There's still some areas that haven't been rebuilt. For example, there's some rail infrastructure that hasn't been rebuilt. Instead, they've opted for buses. You know, there's still a lot of houses that haven't been rebuilt. There's still some areas that are damaged. But for the most part, most infrastructure has been rebuilt. But in terms of society and etc., these are going to be you know, long-term issues, and there are still long-term issues. And I think the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic really slowed down this progress and probably made it worse, right? So, for example, uh, I do a lot of stuff on tourism. And prior to 2011, I wish I could show you a graph, but I can't, so I'll try to explain it. So, uh, of course, after 2011, annual tourism numbers dropped down significantly because there's less tourists coming into the Tsohoku area. And as a result of this decline in tourism and because of the enormous cost of reconstruction, the Japanese government relaxed a lot of the visa policies to promote tourism, especially to neighboring Asian countries. So it's a lot easier for people from other East Asian countries to come visit, right? So that's why we saw like a boom in tourists from Taiwan, Korea, mainland China, etc. And after about five or six years since that visa change, every region in Japan skyrocketed in tourism. And the biggest benefactor of it was actually Okinawa Prefecture, which is interesting because Okinawa didn't really get that much damage from 2011, right? But so every region in Japan, you know, Hokkaido, Okinawa, Shikoku, Kyushu, etc., their tourism numbers skyrocketed way past 2011 levels. It's better than ever. But in the Tohoku area, it did help. But the overall tourism situation in the Tohoku region is still worse than before the, the disaster. So Tohoku is still playing catch up. So it seems like there is still a stigma associated to Tohoku. Oh, definitely. Um, 
and I think it's much worse with Fukushima because of um, ongoing issues with the uh, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Something I want to add first about the stigma is that in Taiwan, there is still a ban on exports from Fukushima produce because when it first happened, literally Taiwanese people completely stopped buying any Japanese produce because they were terrified that any seafood or any sort of produce coming from the Tohoku region would have sort of radiation. So I remember that really clearly. Even years after the earthquake happened, there was still a continued ban on produce because people thought it wasn't safe. However, there is such a big boom in tourism from Taiwan to Japan. So I'm wondering if the earthquake and the relaxation of the visa directly correlates to the rise in tourism in Japan. Right. It is directly correlated. And Taiwan is a very interesting case because when I interviewed most local prefectural offices, like the, the Kensho, like the prefectural government, or the Shiakshou, you know, like the local city governments, generally speaking, Taiwanese are the most preferred tourists in Japan. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and the, the reasons for this is because, one, most Taiwanese are very familiar with Japan, so some of them speak the language or they could read the signs like fairly decently, right? So they know Japan a bit more. Second is that Taiwan is another country that has a lot of hazard risk. Taiwan has a lot of typhoons, earthquakes, landslides. So Taiwanese society, they tend to have better risk knowledge, right? Or risk perceptions that are similar to Japanese. So they're more willing to go into hazardous areas and understand what to do in the case of an emergency. That's fascinating. In contrast, like Korean tourists, like Korea doesn't have as many typhoons. They don't have much earthquakes. So they tend to be more risk adverse. So if there's some slight problems, they don't want to come anywhere, right? Okay, that kind of blows my mind, yeah. So that's the reason why Taiwanese tourists are preferred because they're very familiar with Japan and they also have the same risk perception or similar risk perception as Japanese. And because of that, they're more willing to go to like rural areas or right after disaster, etc. because they know what to do and etc. So that's why Taiwanese are a very preferred um, tourism market. But in terms of the Fukushima issue, Taiwan banning a lot of the products from Fukushima really shocked a lot of Fukushima people because everyone thought, you know, Taiwanese would know better and et cetera and stuff. So, so Fukushima is kind of divided into three areas, right? And the radiation happened on the coastal area and like in the far north corner towards Miyagi. And, but most of the population lives in the center and in the west area. And between the coast and the rest of Fukushima, there are these tall mountains. So the rest of Fukushima is actually quite isolated from the nuclear power plant. And so a lot of like the agriculture comes from the west side. A lot of the products come from the west side. And those areas, you know, are totally safe or comparatively safe. And there's not that much radiation issue or et cetera. But people treat the whole Fukushima as the same, right? So whatever happens in the safer Western side, 
they associate it with like the eastern side. And several communities in Miyagi are actually closer to the, the power plant, but they don't have that same stigma, even though they're actually physically closer. And that's a challenge, right? Because people punish Fukushima all the same, even though Fukushima is like a very you know wide prefecture and most of the people, most of the cities live or they're located away from the radioactive area. So that's one of the things I felt was really unfair about how people perceive products from Fukushima. I see. So essentially because there was, because most of the products are coming from the side that is not really affected by radiation, however, because everyone just thought, oh, the name Fukushima equals radiation. So radiation equals bad. So we should just completely ban everything. I see. Exactly. I see. Then with the tsunami caused by the earthquake, how has Japan changed its overall infrastructure, transportation, or disaster preparedness? Oh, that's a very good question. So in my personal opinion, Japanese like research and academia tends to be very strong in terms of like engineering, like building things. And in Japanese, they call it, they call it like hard infrastructure, right? Hard and soft. But in, in the U.S., we use the term structural mitigation and non-structural mitigation. Could you explain this a little bit for our listeners? Sure, sure. Okay, so structural mitigation or hard mitigation in Japanese English, it's like a physical thing, right? Like a seawall or just buildings that are very resistant to uh, earthquakes or tsunamis, things that you can like physically touch, right? Like, which is why they're called structural or hard mitigation. Non-structural or soft mitigation is more like planning or communication things like education, training, zoning and regulations, communication, things like that. So based on like the examples of 2011, but not even that, but even like the 1995 earthquake, uh, I think slowly but surely Japanese planning has realized there's some limitations in the structural approaches, right? And also the structural approaches are very expensive. Like it's not cheap to build these seawalls all over the coast. And they realize that non-structural approaches are actually just as important. And I think since 2011, there's been more research focusing on these non-structural things. Like, how can we train people better to, like, evacuate more quickly, for example? Or how can we plan a city better, right? So so let me talk about seawalls really quickly. So a lot of people think, okay, if this area has a lot of tsunamis, let's just build a big seawall that would, you know, protect the place from a tsunami, right? But seawalls have three problems. One is that they're very expensive, first to build, and then also to maintain, because you always have to maintain it, right? Once you set it up, you got to maintain it, otherwise stuff will come through. Uh, Second is that they create other kind of impacts. So like, if you're a city that relies on like tourism, you need a, a view of the sea, or a view of the ocean, a seawall would ruin that, right? So a lot of tourism-dependent communities don't want a seawall. Or fishing communities, they don't want a seawall either because it impacts like how fishes can come in and out, right? And a bigger issue is that seawalls create a sense of complacency. So for example, in some cities in Iwate Prefecture, they built a seawall 
and they thought, okay, we're safe. So now we can build all these houses and businesses right next to the coast. But then the seawall was not built for bigger tsunamis like the one in 2011. So all these places that built in places they thought were safe became vulnerable. And that contributed to more damages and more risk of um, casualties, right? And so because of that, like, for example, in Sendai City, they thought, okay, maybe we shouldn't just build here, right? Like, we should think of a new way to zone the city. So, like, this area is just forest and et cetera. And then people live, like, over here. And people who live in this zone, they have to have buildings that are, like, designated a certain height so they can evacuate upwards, right? And so these are, like, some ways of non-structural mitigation, like thinking of the planning of the city, the regulations, or improving training or awareness. So in 2011, it's not just Tohoku, but other prefectures learned a lot more. So now there's increase of signage, like tsunami evacuation signage. So like if you go to like Atami and Shizuoka or some areas like Kanagawa, for example, I've noticed there's way more signs. The signs will tell you, okay, this is a tsunami area. Go this like 500 meters this way to evacuate, et cetera. And they also realized there's more tourists now from abroad. So some cities started installing more multilingual signs. So like when I went to Atami, they just installed these signs that are in Japanese, English, and Spanish, which was interesting, um, Spanish, because uh, in Japan, the most common tourists are usually from Asia. But some other places like in Kyushu, they have signs or information that's English, Japanese, Korean, and simplify Chinese. So there's definitely way more non-structural um, improvements that I think is good, but uh, there's always more to do because having society, because society is so like wide, wide reaching and there's so many aspects of society that non-structural mitigation, you know, will take time because we need to make sure each area is prepared. So do you think it's sort of like a tug of war situation between the economy or the people versus like the disaster preparedness because as you said like seawalls create a sense of complacency and or like fishing boats wouldn't want a seawall or people wouldn't want a seawall oh yeah um like i mentioned earlier you know disasters affect all kinds all aspects of society right so there's all kinds of different conflicts um, between different parties and different kind of philosophies. I'll give you some examples of some conflicts. So one is reconstruction. So one issue is, should we make it inclusive and democratic or do we do it as quick as possible? So if you do it as quick as possible, then you know your city can re start functioning more quickly, right? And it can start the recovery process more faster. But on the other hand, if you do it quickly, you know, you may have the risk of not including everyone. And if you don't include everyone, then the sustainability of the recovery plan gets worse, right? So if you do like a more democratic approach that is inclusive and you take time to listen to everyone's needs, that becomes more supported by everyone. But the thing is, you know, time is also an issue. So how to balance inclusiveness and democracy versus time. So that's one issue. Another big issue is, and this is very unique to Japan, compact cities or spread out cities, right? So as you know, 
besides Tokyo, most of Japan is aging and the population is shrinking, right? And so because a lot of cities are getting smaller, for areas that are hit by disasters, it's a chance to rethink how do we rebuild the city for the future, right? Because the population is going to be older and the, the size is going to be smaller. So um, on the one hand, some people think we should rebuild to have a city that's more compact, like it's more walkable, people can access services easier, and it's easier to manage. But at the same time, when you think of risk, having a compact city means also having more risk in one place. So some people think, no, it should be more spread out. You know, so if one area gets affected, another area doesn't get affected, right? So that's another dilemma. And then, yeah, there's really all kinds of uh, different dilemmas. And of course, the tourism thing, right? Increasing more tourists can definitely help the economy. But on the other hand, it exposes more people to hazard risk. And also some communities may not welcome like the huge increase of tourists. Like we hear a lot of stories like Kyoto where now they're way oversaturated tourists that they become more of a burden. So there's all these different kind of conflicts and et cetera. And especially in Tohoku area, one issue I encounter is um, in terms of reconstruction is that when you read, a lot of places or businesses that rebuild, it doesn't rebuild the same way. So like a lot of these mod pa shops have disappeared because, you know, they wasted, they used up all their savings to survive and they're maybe too old. So they are not that as reinterested in restarting business. So in their stead comes in these big corporations like Eon, and then they take away a lot of like the business businesses from the small businesses, right? So what is like the impact of like Eon coming into these recovery areas and how does it affect like local cohesion and et cetera? And there's some conflict over that too. Because on the one hand, they can provide jobs because they have the money to start up. But on the other hand, they may challenge other smaller businesses, you know, that relied on local customers. So there's a lot of different things to examine um, that are like never ending. But these are some of the things I've, encountered in my research that's so interesting with the eon and the push out of the local businesses that's something i've actually never really considered and i think most people never really considered because they always thought oh if you rebuild it then people might come back and then it'll be fine but there is so much and there is so many conflicts involved Right. In the U.S., we had something similar like with Walmart, because back in the old days, Walmart used to be less prolific. But then now they spread everywhere, into, especially into smaller cities. And a lot of small towns in the U.S. are more local, locally owned stores. So there's like a lot of conflict between like big, big Walmart and small local businesses. And now in Japan, it's happening with Eon. Like when I first when I started my Ph.D. in like 2014, there wasn't so many Eon yet in the Tohoku region, but now like they're everywhere. Like they've just <laughs> took over the region. Oh, I see. All right. So since you previously also stated about how COVID-19 has impacted the Tohoku area a lot in terms of both tourism and rebuilding, then how has the pandemic inhibited the process of in both the structural and non-structural reconstruction? I think for starters, the main thing with, especially in the early part of COVID, like that happened exactly a year ago, 
you know, people were really afraid about going out, right? So that limited like how many people could go out and do things because people are trying to socially distance or stay at home. Currently, I think, you know, people, society is starting to, businesses are restarting and people are going out again and doing work. So I think, you know, a lot of projects are beginning to resume. But I think one concern is that because there's a lot less tourism and because more people are focused on the counteracting the pandemic, um, I think in terms of like revenue, like um, funding sources for these projects, I'm sure that for a lot of places, the funding resources have probably been diverted. And in that case, in that sense, I think that's how a lot of um, recovery or reconstruction aspects are being affected uh, because of this um, diversion of funding towards the pandemic. So it's going to either take longer. I don't know if there's any projects that are completely abandoned, but I know for some of the tourism people I've talked to, a lot of things have switched. Like instead of focusing on overseas promotion, they have to focus more on like domestic promotion or just finding ways for like local businesses to survive. So um, they, I think they kind of switched from the the mindset of instead of recovery and rebuilding, just trying to survive this pandemic until normalcy, whatever normalcy is, but they're hoping to survive until normalcy comes back. Mm, I see. So now it's more of like, this is an emergency situation. Let's focus first on the top priority and then go back to what we were doing before. Right. That's what how I interpret it so far. Oh, I see. Uh, because there's just so much uncertainty about this, right? Because it's a very unique situation. You haven't experienced anything like this in a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So do you think the go-to travel campaign with the government encouraging people to go to other prefectures affected the tourism of Tohoku? I think there's um, pros and cons for the go-to travel campaign. Let me start with the cons. So I think most people consider that the go-to travel campaign either directly or indirectly led to the huge spike in COVID cases. So we had like that spike around you know, late spring and summer of last year, right? And then it went down after like several months of the emergency status. But then around winter, like fall and winter, when the go-to travel campaign started, that's when you saw the huge spike recur, like recurring again, right? In terms of like national COVID cases. So that coincides with the go-to travel campaign. But on the other hand, a lot of tourism businesses I talked to, they really want the uh, go-to travel campaign to resume because it really did help them mm-hmm. in terms of like pushing people to travel again. You know what's interesting about the campaign is it wasn't just domestic tourists, but foreign residents in Japan, they also get some like benefits. So there was like the JR Welcome Pass and the JR Kyushu Pass. I forgot the exact name, but there was a pass where non-residents in Japan can get like a pass for like three days or a week that they can use the any train, even the Shinkansen as much as they want, right? Which was um, one way to spur tourism. And I think in April, JR East is doing another pass for foreign residents of Japanese. So these are some ways they're trying to spur tourism. And I think hotels and restaurants, they welcome that. But at the same time, it increases the risk of COVID mm-hmm. transmission. Yeah, it's definitely 
a big conflict between both the economy and the whole pandemic in general. So lastly, when we're looking ahead into the future, how can Fukushima leave its stigma of radiation and revive its tourism? Okay, so um, one of my research projects actually that I finished writing up and it's probably going to be published soon, I looked at the sake industry. So Fukushima is famous for like several things. So samurai castles, peaches, and sake. And despite the 2011 disasters, Fukushima always wins like the top award for like best sake in Japan. And I think they won like six, seven years straight the top award. And so I interviewed like all the sake breweries across Fukushima. And I asked them, you know, what are the challenges? Like, how did you guys keep winning, even though there's all this negative stigma and et cetera. And they had several strategies. First, yes, there is a negative stigma. And a lot of their traditional markets just like shut them out. Like Taiwan, as you mentioned, banned everything from Fukushima, but also like Hong Kong, mainland China, Korea, you know, they're very risk averse, so they don't want anything to do with it. And so they had like a kind of like a three-pronged strategy. Like first was to ensure the safety so they invested a lot in like safety inspections and tests and et cetera to make sure, you know, there's no radiation that the product is safe as possible. Right. So in that way, Fukushima's products are more inspected thoroughly than other parts of Japan. So in a way you feel more safer about it. The second, they changed the market. So if the Asian countries aren't buying it. They got a market to other places. So they've been expanding in North America and Europe. And a lot of it is done through collaboration between the public sector and the private sector. So that's one way to recover both the image and tourism as a whole. You just change the markets and you do a lot of like events in other countries to introduce the area and introduce the products and et cetera. So people become familiar and interested in it. So that's another way. And usually they do a lot of rebranding campaigns. So. And I have an article about this too, about how places that are in a crisis rebrand themselves to make themselves look more interesting, right? So for example, from what I saw, Aomori Prefecture, which is right next to Hokkaido. So rather than um, promoting themselves as like a Tohoku area, they try to associate themselves with Hokkaido because everyone loves Hokkaido. And the Shinkansen just goes like, there's a new Shinkansen, right? That goes all the way to Hokkaido. So they're like trying to attract the Hokkaido tourists. Like, okay, before you come to Hokkaido, stop by here. The stop before Hokkaido. And, you know, if you like Hokkaido, come here. Like they try to do a package like Aomori in Hokkaido. So that's one thing. And like Akita, they would try to position themselves as the real original Japan because, you know, modern Japan has changed so much. So Akita is like, come here for, you know, the classic original Japan. So in the case of Fukushima, a lot of their problems are like very current and very serious, right? Like the nuclear power plant issue, et cetera. So a lot of their promotion tends to focus on the future. So like they'll use some kind of like terms in Japanese, like Nidai, Nidai, or Shodai, which is associated with the future. And they keep promoting these images like sustainable or smart Fukushima or you know, Fukushima tech and et cetera. So they're trying to re-image themselves as like some kind of new futuristic place. 
that doesn't exist now, but something you can look forward to in the future. And mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, sorry. I was gonna say that they're trying to sort of rebrand because I feel that a lot of people, especially foreigners um, who are not Japanese, always associate Fukushima as oh, there are ghost towns where people don't live, and if you go inside, then and you turn on the little radiation meter, then the radiation is much higher than other places. And I feel like that image just is still in people's minds when they think about the word Fukushima. Right, right. And I, that's going to take a while to change, but uh, it can happen. So using some other past examples of image change, we have Kita Kyushu in uh, Fukuoka Prefecture. And Kita Kyushu used to be a very heavily industrial area. Like it used to be like the image was like gray and polluted and stuff, right? Then they spent a long time trying to like clean it up and redesign the area more as like a tourism destination and more like a green infrastructure. So it took like several decades, but people don't have that image of keep the Kyushu being dirty anymore. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right. So time to wrap up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So do you want to ask it or do I ask it? Okay, I'll do it. Okay. So uh, what can we do to help Fukushima? I think it's simple. Um, buy more products from Fukushima. You know, a lot of them go through very thorough safety inspections, so it should be safe for most consumers. Um, like a lot of the peaches and et cetera, they come from uh, the western half of Fukushima, so it's not a, much of an issue. And maybe one day, you know, when the emergency declarations get removed from the Tokyo area and the COVID pandemic becomes more manageable, I think a lot of people should really visit Fukushima. I used to do a lot of tourism videos in my travels, so there's like a lot of my videos on the the internet, and there's like a lot of really nice sites. It's one of my favorite places to in Tohoku to, for sightseeing. So I really recommend people like visit there, and I think once you visit there, you can appreciate it, and also the stereotypes of Fukushima will disappear once you you know understand what it is like life is like over there. You know, it's like a normal place. For most parts, you know, I mean, there's some parts that are still struggling, but there's a lot of places, you know, that are still, you know, relatively, you know, functioning and et cetera. And, you know, it would just help them if more people visited. Okay, so for now, travel when it is safe to travel and eat peaches. <laughs> right. <laughs> and drink sake. <laughs> and drink sake. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. So... Thank you so much for guesting. Is that a word? Can I say guesting? <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. And thank you listeners for always listening to our podcast. And this podcast will be available on Spotify as well as many other platforms. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Thank you so much for being here and see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.